0: Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hine. Thanks for joining us. This week we're joined by the former U.S. Deputy Secretary of the Treasury and founder of the Hamilton Project and Evercore, the big Wall Street investment bank, Roger Altman. Remember, we take your questions each episode. So write in to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. Please don't forget to tell us where you're from. And check out the link to this week's sponsor, Blinkist, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It's what makes this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us. Remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, that pandemic relief that I felt several weeks ago, I actually took my first plane ride. Uh, we started going out more. I think it's under fire. The number of COVID cases has surged in the past two weeks, 83% of the new Delta variant. At the same time, these right-wing Republicans the Trump crazies are doubling down on resistance, which is costing, I think, thousands of lives. I just note a New York Times piece on Tennessee. Governor Bill Lee had his picture taken getting the flu shot. That's good. That's what a governor should do, right? He won't allow his picture to be taken while getting a COVID shot. I mean, that's just crazy. Uh, The legislature has banned any vaccine outreach, and they fired the state's medical director. These people are crazy, and they're going to cost a lot of lives.
1: So that's the question of the day. Most of this you're seeing is from where I am in the South. I I think like 45% of new cases coming out of Florida. I'm telling you what I'm doing. I'm getting the hell out of here. I'm leaving Saturday, all right? And I, I don't think, like, if you're in northwest Washington, I, I, I don't think you have much to worry about it. The spike in Louisiana was horrific today. And when you look at the nationwide numbers, they're mostly concentrated. Now, there's something that's going on here because now you got Scalise taking a shot. you got Sean Hannity saying get a shot. You got a, a, a lot of stuff going, you know, they've gotten a, either a poll or some kind of briefing where there's this holy shit moment. But it, we're going backwards down here. I, I can assure you, I mean, really backwards to the point that, you know, we may have to if this doesn't get better soon, they're going to have to go to lockdowns again, which I don't think people. Are well, I don't of know it. if they
0: have a poll or not, but their people are dying. <laughs> it is disproportionately right. their people no, but, and yes I'm glad Steve Scalise got a shot but last weekend what the hell's he been doing for the last six months
1: I, I mean for god's sakes I, 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 I don't know Josh Marshall has a good piece on talking points where he speculates is to the same thing that we speculate yeah. no but something has happened in the last three or four days that has like changed people around and Let's see how many more changes we get, but the, the, the new numbers out of Louisiana are horrific. Well, and
0: they're terrific. As you said, they're horrific out of Florida. Again, this great myth that Ron DeSantis has done a terrific job in, in Florida, it's dead wrong. Uh, and in any event, uh, let's, just, let's just hope that maybe people will uh, you know, get a little bit of wisdom that the sure as hell haven't shown this, so this, far. Yeah,
1: this is not going There's no
0: reason for now. this to be a political issue. This is not a political issue. None. I mean, Todd... Tommy now, Tuberville, who may be the dumbest man, I don't know, maybe they're dumber senators in the past, but he's maybe, right, he doesn't have an IQ, you're, you're, he you're doesn't have an IQ of room temperature. He said some of his constituents his constituents, aren't going to get vaccinated until Biden gives credit to Trump for all he did. I mean, that's beyond insane. That's just, you know. You know what? Do it and
1: give people $1,000. Oh, $1, anything? Right? Just right. do it and just say it's all because of him. It, it, just, jeez, man, let, let's just go back to life. I mean, anything right. it takes. And, and you know, there's this thing about, well, you give a $100 a lottery ticket or, you know, somebody was responsible and got vaccinated earlier. They don't get the $1,000. I don't care. Just good I, I, God, I, I, man. Give people a life. Because it's like affecting
0: that. other people. There's no question. Hey, yes. James, uh, there's a special Democratic congressional primary in Ohio in about 10 days for the seat vacated by HUD Secretary Marsha Fudge. Uh, Is there any significance?
1: Usually these kind of special election primaries don't much matter. Yeah, I I think there is. And, you know, it's a classic case. former state senator Nina Turner is a very left-wing Democrat, was a a chairman of Bernie Sanders' campaign. And uh, she's very squatty, I I guess that would be the term I'd use. And her principal opponent is is a a, a black female by the name of Chantrell Brown, who's a Typical kind of politician, I think she was on a Cuyahoga board of
0: maybe the party chair, Cleveland right.
1: City Council. Yeah, party mm-hmm. chair, you know. And uh, it, it's 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 a it's a it's a significant thing to look at. And you know, right now, uh, Turn is in the lead. Now, generally, in in New York City, in Louisiana, in Virginia, uh, the the Democrats have gone with the more traditional, you know, political type people as opposed to the. The more woke people, this is going to be an, a, a significant test of this. And I'm told by people close to it that that Turner has a lead, not an insurmountable lead, but does have a lead. Well,
0: Jim Kleiber in the House number three House Democrat, wouldn't be out there campaigning for for this person, uh, uh, the, the traditional candidate, if it didn't matter. The squad is a very very small contingent in the House caucus, but they have a huge microphone. And if they win this race, that microphone gets even bigger and endangers, I think, other Democrats. But
1: precisely, I, I, I think every Democrat should pay particularly close attention to this election because I, I, I think it's more significant than just two black Democrats running each other in an urban setting. I, th- I think it has more. Let me pay.
0: Let me pay. pay let me pay credit to another Democrat, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi who, when Kevin McCarthy named two people to the January 6th commission, actually named five, who had no intentions of doing anything but disrupting, making a mockery of it, Jim Banks and Jim Jordan, Jim Jordan's the House Republican thug, Banks, who says, well, we really ought to spend more time looking at these protests. Their sole mission was to destroy this commission, which is supposed to look into the worst mob assault in the Capitol since the British in 1812, and six people died what they what the republicans did was is a disgrace and three cheers for nancy pelosi for kicking them off the, that committee whatever happens
1: i wish they'd have a select committee to investigate the wrestling program at Ohio oh State. jim jordan wouldn't want that and one the, 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 yeah right and the, the sexual molestation of young athletes that took place with jim jordan being fully aware of what was going on right. Doing absolutely nothing and denying it—that's what I'd like well, to see. Well, J- J- how are you going to protect America if you can't protect, you know, restless?
0: The good news on the athletic front, however, James, is that finally we had a a professional sports championship team visit the White House. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers <laughs> came to the White House. What'd you think?
1: Well, you know, I'm a big John Shade admirer. anybody listen to this? program should look should should read what he said but i mean I, you know, tom brady i you know yeah he's undoubtedly the greatest quarterback in the history of the nfl and but he's turned out to be one of the better uh uh shift stickers in the history of the nfl because he went there and told biden 40 percent of the people still don't think we won <laughs> and biden says well i understand that and uh it, it was uh, it, it was remarkable and uh it, it was really funny it was well done it was well executed and i i i love and he said
0: that. when he had a bad game some people referred to him as sleepy Tom uh, yeah he said he forgotten yeah, 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 right. that, that's sleepy Tom all right that's we can end that, on good yeah. news that's terrific.
1: Yeah, I tell you what, thing, we got a bitch in this, this uh, Milwaukee Bucks and that Greek freak. I mean, that, <laughs> I mean, wow. <laughs> he is
0: something. He is
1: something. Okay, Just here's to them. the Greek freak. Yes, indeed.
0: Hey, James Carver, I don't know anyone who is as knowledgeable about the economy and yeah. markets and can talk about it in ways that you and I can understand than Roger Altman. A former deputy treasury secretary, top economic advisor to prominent Democrats now. He's the CEO and founder of Evercore, a leading independent investment banking firm. Roger, I don't have to tell you my limitations. You know them. But many years when I was with The Wall Street Journal, people would ask me, what's the stock market going to do? And I had no earthly idea. So I just said it was going to be mixed and people looked like I knew what I was talking about. I look at everything today. Stock market plunges one day up the next day. And, and we worry about inflation one day and growth the next. It really looks mixed. Help us. Where are we? Well, it's a very
2: unusual moment, actually, in financial markets as a whole, because the cross-currents are not those you'd normally see, or at least the main cross-currents are not those you normally see, in the following way. Two days ago, uh, the market woke up uh Uh, metaphorically speaking, and had uh, a nervous, a temporary nervous breakdown over the Delta variant of the virus and the spread of the variant and uh, events like Los Angeles reimposing a mass mandate and the impacts around the world, some of which are very severe, as we all know, and sold off very sharply. And by the way, the bond market, which, as you know, typically um, moves uh, uh, inversely to stock prices. In other words, when stock prices are really strong, usually interest rates are rising and bond prices are falling. But the bond market also was very strong, um, signifying concerns that it had also about the virus and the impact of the virus on growth. And that was Monday. And then 24 hours later, those sentiments were overcome by uh, a, a series of strong earnings reports like Verizon and Coca-Cola, and a realization that earnings are going to be stronger than many people had expected, corporate earnings, which on any at any given moment it probably has the greatest influence on an individual stock price and a sense that maybe the concerns for the, uh, over the virus were overblown. And so you've seen this powerful rally over the last two days, uh, entirely wiping out, or largely wiping out, the losses we saw, the severe losses we saw at the beginning of the week. Now, the other very unusual thing here is that the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank and certain other central banks, but those two in particular, are continuing to supply huge amounts of support to the economy and in effect then to financial markets. The Federal Reserve is buying, is still buying 120 billion of securities a month, of fixed income securities a month. Uh, And the ECB is continuing to, to buy aggressively as well. The Federal Reserve balance sheet is up by over 4 trillion in the past 15 months, 16 months. Uh, it's an astonishing figure, and so you have on the one hand pretty strong recovery uh i mean our firm follows a lot of the industry sect it, 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 the uh the kind of key indices of the economy very closely and for example, today, our truckers survey, which is the single most closely correlated one to g d p was up again not not flat or down uh and you saw retail sales last Friday extremely strong. So these you have you have a strong recovery. You have the overlay of the virus, very very unusual. We all know. You have the central banks continuing to pour money into the system. And generally speaking, this is all driving stock prices up. So
0: Roger, if you're if you're J, put yourself in J Powell's shoes right now, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, what do you think is his biggest worry, uh, at least over the next six months?
2: Inflation. It is. It is inflation.
0: And is there a trade-off between growth and inflation concerns?
2: Not short term, but theoretically there's a trade-off medium and longer term. But we let's, let's unpack that a minute. Um, so the most recent consumer price index figure of about a week ago, a little more than a week, indicated a 5.4% annual rate on the CPI. Now, other measures of inflation, like the CPI, like the like core CPI, which excludes food and energy, uh, and other measures are not as running quite as high as that one is. But that was a shocker, that 5.4% CPI figure. And obviously, if we were really going to run for some considerable period of time at 5.4% inflation, having been around 1% in the last couple of years, that would be too high. Uh, But the debate, as you know, in the economics community and in the market, is whether this is just a blip, whether it's a temporary uptick, which is effectively transitory, that's the word that so many people use, that's the word that Jay Powell has used, that's the word Janet Yellen has used, or whether it's really a long-term strong upward trend. Right now, more people think it's transitory than think it's secular. Uh, and you, if, if that wasn't the case, you would likely see bond yields higher than they are right now. They've rebounded a couple last couple of days, but the 10 year today is I looked about 10 minutes ago, 1.28%. If the market really thought that we were at continuous 5.4% inflation, that bond yield would be higher. So at the moment, there's a more more of you that it's transitory. But remember, the Fed has a dual mandate: price control, which means inflation control, and full employment. And if you're Powell, you're much more nervous about the price control side of it right now because of mixed signals you're getting. James, so so Roger, I I think
1: I've been knowing you for 40 years. You've been about two in class. And, and one thing that you've been consistent about is that the bond market is a, really a, a better indicator of what's going on than the stock market. Is, is that a correct assessment of your views?
2: I would say over the over the years we've known each other, it has been a much better indicator. But James, on any given day, you know, you can't be sure. I mean, right now, if you were to call up four or five really smart people in the bond market, they would say, "What we have here is a tug of war." between the, the, the pretty strong growth we're seeing, which usually means more demand for capital, which usually means higher interest rates, and the tremendous continued buying from the Fed, which obviously means at a, at a, at a, at a at the margin, lower interest rates. And those two are fighting each other, so to speak. Um, but I, I think yes, the answer to your question generally is yes.
1: So the 10-year the treasury is, uh, what did you say, 1.28%? So, so this means that massive number of investors don't or really don't see growth or inflation. I mean, they're willing to tie up money for 10 years at a, at a 1.28% return. I, I, I mean, it doesn't, I don't understand that. I mean, if we got to have some more growth than 1.28% or some more inflation than that, don't
2: we? Well, it's a very good question, James, because... Um, You know, if you step way back and and you and I were financial historians of of reasonable repute, we would say we've never seen a period like this with interest rates this low for this long. We've never seen that. Um, I think one of the explanations is that the U.S. economy is strong and most of the rest of the world is not. That's one explanation because we have one global market for for, for capital these days, and uh, basically uh, the, the, the U.S. Treasury market is a global market. You would also hear, uh, you're also right on the other point, which is, as I just said, I don't think there's really deep concern about inflation right now. Um, and a lot of people think that this recovery, while strong right this minute, a year from now will be back to about 2% in terms of our growth maybe slightly more, but not much. And then we're going to settle back down to the long run growth potential of the U.S. economy, which most economists say is sort of 1.8 to 2%. So that in other words, this, this, this sharp comeback is temporary. Okay. So I, I know
1: this is an unknowable question. It revolves more on my area to your area, but let's just say that the, the, the markets are right. So we, we have, let's we say GDP grows six and a half percent and. uh, august of this year and then it grows two percent in august of an election year in 2022 if you just were the the sentiment of voters i mean if you were if you were if your growth rate if you were negative four percent and you went to plus two percent that would produce one sentiment if you were plus six and a half percent and you went to plus two percent that that concerns me I
2: I know there's no, I'm I'm asking you a question that there is not an answer to. Well, let let me answer a question you didn't quite ask. Okay, You're heading out. Okay, I'm I'm probing. I, I think the outlook for the types of factors that in my amateurish way seem to influence voters for the fall of 2022 is pretty good if you're a Democrat, as follows, as follows. I mean... The job creation rate is very strong right now. And, and it looks like we're going to have very tight labor markets a year from now, uh, meaning low unemployment, um, wages rising, especially for low and lower middle income people, and very good labor market conditions. Secondly, we are going to be growing. And I'm not sure that the individual American, or, or for that matter, you and I, Just walking down the street on a given day can can really feel whether we're growing at one and a half or two and a half percent. So but we will be growing, which is good. Uh, And no one knows where financial markets will be then. It's just impossible to judge. But um, even if we're slowing down at that point from the high growth rates we're seeing today, I think the chances are that the economic conditions are going to be pretty favorable in especially in terms of those various metrics like the unemployment rate like wages that so many americans correctly pay attention to
1: so so i'm going to turn it over now one more question i'm, I'm here in, in, in new orleans obviously i have a lot of friends that are business people and they hire a lot of people and it's almost an article of faith that the the checks that biden unemployment checks is stuff, whatever that biden's sending out are causing people not to want to work. And that in September, when those stop, there's going to be this massive influx of people in the labor market. Uh, uh, To the extent I can read what what kind of high-end economists think, they don't necessarily buy that. Is this labor shortage, how much do people, do you think that this labor shortage is driven by giving away free things by the Biden administration? Yep, yeah, I probably asked the question I, inelegantly, but you know no, what I mean? No, no.
2: No, 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 it's a very good question, James. And actually, you asked it very well. Um, I I think that's a gross oversimplification of why a lot of people are holding back from the labor labor force. So let's let's unpack that. So before pre-COVID, uh, February 2020, the labor participation rate, which is simply the percentage of Uh, age-eligible and and otherwise eligible Americans uh, for working was 63.5%. Right now, it's 61.6%, about two points lower. So a lot of Americans are not in the labor market today uh, compared to two years ago or less than two years ago. Now, why is that? Surely the factor you mentioned is one of the reasons, but I, I don't think it's the dominant reason. I think a lot of people... You know, we we just came through a year and a third, whatever precisely it is in terms of COVID, which is completely and totally unprecedented. People were forced to work from home. People uh, did not spend on normal things they did like travel and eating out and so forth. And it's caused a tremendous amount of change in terms of, for example, how much money people have right now, which is relatively high in terms of how they feel about returning to their prior work patterns. A lot of people are uncertain about that Um, in terms of people changing jobs. Right now, there's a lot of job changing going on. So I think it's going to take more time, James, to know whether a lot of these people that aren't in the labor force now have permanently left it or not. So the factor you mentioned is one, but it's really only one of about four things that's going on. And to say as soon as the uh, pandemic premium unemployment checks stop in September, everybody will rush back to work. That's way too simplified. I know a lot of people who basically, uh, obviously didn't work in the usual way in the last year and a half and are questioning whether they ever want to do that again. Maybe they want to work part-time. Maybe they want to do different, something different in terms of the type of work they're doing. But a lot of people have rethought how they want to work, whether they want to work as much, things like that, as a result of this completely unprecedented year and a third. That's that's a fascinating
0: topic all to itself, which we'll have to come back and visit with you, Roger. But let, me, let me go back to the economy. You mentioned the global economy uh, and the interdependent
2: global uh, economic world. What's the outlook of China, Japan, Europe? Well, you have to break that down. So China is, you know, because it It's not really a developing country any longer in the usual sense of that term, but it's much less developed than the United States. China continues to grow at rates higher than we do, but China's growth is not quite as high as a lot of people would have thought if they were thinking about this two years ago. Um, China really has a lot of deep-seated issues, including demographics and the aging of their labor force and the fact that, I mean, we can all read how China is now rather desperately trying to get uh, Chinese Chinese couples to have more children. So China has a lot of deep-seated issues. One is demographics. One is the one is the whole overlay of climate, because uh, they're doing uh, they're trying hard to adjust to that. A third is the whole role of the state in China, which is really going back. I mean, we're, Xi Jinping is moving backwards in terms of. State control over industry, in other words, more state control under under Xi Jinping that we saw for the last twenty or thirty years. A lot of complicated factors in China, but so China's growing at a rate that looks high, but it isn't as high as most people would have thought, and I don't think it's as high as the Chinese authorities would like. Japan is is pretty flat, um, and in terms of Europe, there's so much turmoil over the virus in Europe. It's it's really Europe is struggling. Um, uh, and definitely not growing at all like the United States is. And then you look around the rest of the world, you see countries like India, which are having terrible problems, South Africa, uh, and, and some other big markets. And you say that the US, which is rather amazing given how much criticism the US gets, is recovering in a very impressive way. I mean, you just have to say that. Uh, it's, it's really quite remarkable. Uh, and, and you know, we're headed back toward a three to three and a half percent unemployment rate. As I said a minute ago, we're seeing wages rise in a way they we, we would long have wanted them to rise, but they are rising pretty rapidly right now, especially for people that need it most. And, you know, you have to take your head off to the U.S. economy, the flexibility of the U.S. economy, the flexibility of the American labor force, uh, our version of capitalism, however much criticism it may get right now looks pretty good is it perfect of course it's not perfect i mean but it's it's pretty good
1: so yeah I, you know i to go back to the climate the, I, I was reading today because we we'll we hear about the, the the horrible fires that we have in and a hundred and you know 15 degree temperatures in portland oregon and just in the middle of something they are having historic rains in central china i mean historic i mean really you know we're so absorbed with ourselves, but China's got, they they got a a significant climate issues to deal with, don't they?
2: Well, China, China does because, uh, I mean, it's a huge country, 1.4 billion people. Remember, it's four times our size on population. Um, And uh, even though the United States has contributed more to the stock of carbon emissions that are permanently in the atmosphere than China has. Right now, China's a much bigger emitter year, year, or this year and next year and the year after that than we are mostly because it's bigger. So the challenge for China is even harder than the challenge for us. But look, only somebody who's, who's uh, not studying the facts would say to themselves, I'm not worried about climate because climate is, is showing its teeth in a fair, in a scary way. And if you really, and it's hard to, it's hard to conclude anything, but that it's going to get quite a bit worse.
0: No, I was just going to say this has been as enlightening as any conversation that we could possibly have on this subject. And, and, and I understand most of it, Roger. So, I mean, you have achieved your objective. Uh, and I think James would second that.
1: I, I, I definitely would. I, I just want to ask one question. I know that our, our listeners would ask the same question. And I know you can't, no one can give overall financial advice or whatever, but how do you think the best way for someone to tweak their portfolio knowing that the inevitable climate is going to get worse for a long time before it gets better? Is there there any kind of advice that you you can just, macro advice, maybe a little more of this and a little less
2: of that? Well, uh, a couple of points. Um, Everybody has their own view on this question, what I'm about to say, but my view is the world is waking up really fast to the climate risk and the amount for example of investment that's going to go in to climate mitigation strategies whether it's renewables or whether it's uh uh outer edge or or cutting edge technologies that aren't really yet commercial scale uh carbon capture and storage things like that is going to be huge and For somebody who really has time on their hands, and uh, you're gonna see some very impressive companies, including new companies emerge at the cutting edge of climate mitigation and climate technology. So one way to play this would be to watch that and think to yourself, which companies are actually gonna be uh, those those that are fighting this at the edge, the other the other point I would make, though, is um, I think there are parts of the world uh, where the where the the issue of climate refugees and, and the millions and millions of people, maybe even billions, that are going to be victimized here, that are going to have a hard time. In those parts of the world, obvious examples like Bangladesh and so forth, but but you know the resourcefulness of like the U.S. economy is, as I said a minute ago, never to be underestimated. And I'm not convinced that American, and for that matter, a lot of other global uh, industries won't adapt uh, in a way that enables them to continue to make progress. So, you know, the oldest idea in the book, which is Warren Buffett's very good idea, is that if you have enough, if you if you have a long enough horizon, you'd never go wrong investing in the stock market, maybe through index funds, for example, the S and P five hundred or the Vanguard five hundred. I still think that's true. If you only have a year or two and you need the money, that's probably not a good strategy. But if you're investing, if you're investing for your children and you have a long term horizon, it's probably still, despite climate. A good strategy.
0: I would trust Roger Altman as much as Warren Buffett. You've been a terrific guest, Roger. You've enlightened
2: us. Uh, and thank you so much. All the best. Love you both.
0: All right, James. Turn your goals into reality this summer, and take action to start learning what you need to get to the next level by joining us and using Blinkist. Blinkist takes top nonfiction books and gives you the key takeaways in text and audio explainers called blinks. You can learn from just 15 minutes. You can use Blinks to tackle procrastination, get started on developing an idea of business, take your projects to the next level, or dive into history with titles like A Short History of Brexit. They've blinked thousands of titles in 27 categories. And if you like podcasts, they blink those too with Shortcast. And it's all in one app right in your pocket so you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist you're a fan, James, I know that. I am,
1: and you know, I'm going to be with the Tony people here in, in about a week, a little bit more than a week, in, in, in Nantucket, and it's going to be 75 degrees, and I'm going to spend a lot of time reading Blink Kiss and, and drinking good wine. I can tell you that right now. That, I'm going to be so much smarter after two weeks of, of you know, good weather in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and Blink Kiss, so I'm, I'm excited for it.
0: And mingling with the real people in the United States. James Carville no, feels the pulse of America. <laughs> nothing is better. You can use Blinkist and a summer reading list from them: "Fear" by Bob Woodward and "The Soul of America" by John Meacham. And right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com/slash-warroom to start your free seven-day trial and get twenty-five percent off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash War Room, get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash or look for the link in our show notes. All right, James, now... For our segment that we love and our listeners who send such good questions. And the thing that makes me guilty about this is there's so many good ones, it's hard to pick and choose. And I apologize for the ones that we left out, but keep them coming. Uh, The first one is Sharman in La Jolla, California. She says, this is to both of us. She said, it dates me terribly, Al. I remember when you were the kid on Washington Week in Review with Peter Lissigore and Charles Caudroy, Man, you think it ages you, Charmin. You can imagine what it does to me. I would just tell you quickly, the first time I went in that show, uh, I was on with, uh, with Charles Cordray, the Baltimore Sun, who was about 30 years older uh, than I was. And the next day, I flew to O'Hare Airport, and I'm walking through the airport. The first time in my life, someone stopped me and said, hey, they recognized me. I saw you on television last night. And I puffed up. I thought, man, this is something. I'm a big deal. And I started to say who I was. He said, no, no, I know you. I'll get your You're Charles Cordray. Uh, at which point, I puffed down again. But anyway, uh, James, uh, Sharman's roots are in Louisiana, specifically Darrow County, and my marriage has often been compared to you and your wife, Mary Madeline, but in reverse. I'm the Democrat, and my husband is the Republican, but under my influence, he is now a rhino.
1: I don't know if James has had quite as much success. Uh, Okay, I, I, I think there's no Darrow, there's no counties in Louisiana, there's no Darrow Parish. I think she's from Darrow, Louisiana, which is about... Well, you
0: better get it right, Sherman, because uh, you, you want to know okay. where your family is is from.
1: Her, her. Right. I, I it's, it's an ascension barrage. I'm not sure. And uh, in La Jolla, I was in the Marine Corps in the fall of uh, 1966, and I actually was sitting at a bar in La Jolla watching the initial New Orleans Saints game against the Los mm-hmm. Angeles Rams. And I think it was Walter Flea Roberts that went coast-to-coast. Coast. It's it's it, first, it was a junior gill Walter a, Flea Roberts. It's a special
0: play, But let me get to a question, which is why not get rid of the aisle? The delightful social side of the House and Senate is gone. The way at three martinis lunch. Pity. So I don't know. Uh, you're right. We're, we are rid of the aisle. It used to be people could forward some bipartisan. They'll cut some kind of a deal in the Senate on infrastructure maybe. But uh, by and large, until they reform the Republican Party, uh, it ain't going to be, you know, what it was for all of its flaws.
1: Yeah, th- this is a distressing time. And I wish I, you know, and people always say, do you think it's going to get better? And I, my only, uh, the, the most honest answer I can give, well, I certainly hope it does. Yeah. But I, I, uh, this is not J- very good.
0: James, no, uh, good. Ed in-, in Newburyport, Massachusetts, has a suggestion. He said, I'm wondering, he is a great supporter of college sports, and I'm wondering if you would ever consider... Doing an ncaa style tournament to determine the greatest Ivy League sphincters of all times. Once we get enough members, we could, you know, put them together like March Madness. We could have yeah. a sixty-four, yeah. Yeah. And we uh, hey, could we could do. We could do yeah. brackets. I mean, I yeah. you know, you could do them by regions. Could be done by eras. Whatever. Uh, what do you think?
1: I, look, it's gonna. I can tell you right now, the the the, the final four are gonna be Donald Trump, Roy Cole, John C. Calhoun and I, I think the fourth team is to be determined but that that's my initial top three and you know we'll see who the fourth well,
0: is. you know there' are guys like uh, Josh Hawley who could who could who could yeah, their know, record could well, improve believe me,
1: there's a lot of competition, there man. there's a lot of competition yeah a lot. Yeah. Craig I mean,
0: is asking the, the crew same question but I think in a little more friendly way than our uh, our listener from Denver did a few weeks ago. He said, he's been listening every week as, as we lambaste the progressives, which I don't think we do. I think it's a different, different. I have different terminology. And he said, I understand the progressive agenda rankles the middle of the roaders who are doing well economically in the country. But do you all understand the status quo has not served a large swath of the population well? For many blacks and poor folks, progressives are advocating policies that will lead to better economic conditions sooner rather than later. Yeah, the progressives need to be mindful of cultural war landmines, Republicans use against them, but their agenda is vital. James, take that on.
1: Well, first of all, I, I consider—I don't consider myself a middle of the road. I consider myself a, a liberal, but I'm sure that some people want to follow. I, I guess I do know we we have struggled with incomes of people. We have struggled with racism. We have struggled with a lot of stuff. But guess what? We're not Cuba and we're not Venezuela. All right. And that's not the answer. Uh, I I think the answer is higher taxes on wealthy people. Wealthy people. I think the answer is mostly a lot of, you know, not just quote investment in in people, but like smart investments in terms of schools and infrastructure. But the the, the point is well taken. You know, since the seventies, uh, we've had uh, pretty slow income growth, and we've not advanced enough for for, for certain segments of America. But i I'm, I'm not. I'm not convinced that we just need to change for the sake of change, and and I I understand that, but, and I think I'm a pretty liberal guy. Uh, But your point is well taken, but the the answer, I I, I know what the problem is, I'm just very, very trepidatious about the answer. Yeah,
0: and I think that um, Greg, uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, and Joe Biden, and Chuck Schumer are certainly moving to try to address the issues you raise. And uh, I think they're doing it in a very difficult but realistic way. So to some extent,
1: it's definitional. Um, Julie, and Livermore... Wait, wait, there's one more point I want to make on this. And this is a very dangerous... This is what people say. It it actually makes sense to think about it. Something must be done. This is something. Ergo, let's do this. All right, that, that's the... Yeah, I don't, that's not always the best way to go. I mean, something must be done, but the idea is to do something smart. Exactly.
0: Julie in Livermore, California asked, can the governor of Texas, who I last week called Jim Abbott, I apologize to Jim Abbott, uh, it was really a, a, a terrible slight, it is Greg Abbott, arrest the Democratic representatives who left Texas to protect voting rights. Can he actually jail them in the Capitol? Well, he could jail them in Texas. He won't do that. Uh, This is all uh, a show initiated by that terrible voter suppression law uh, he's trying to pass. And um, it's just uh, it's it's underscores the reason the Senate has to pass. They have to pass this this election reform bill. If they don't do that, then all the good stuff, other good stuff they can do will probably prove to be ephemeral.
1: Yeah, it is. And, you know, I, I think that we're seeing the tip of the iceberg on the reaction to this. Like, I think they're going to do it. I think they're going through this it. in a lot of different places. I I, I I think the response to this is pretty visceral. And it, it, if this thing, this bill doesn't pass, it, 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 the America's going to be very split and and very angry. I, I, I can feel this among Democratic voters. They're like, but they're, they're really fed up. Yes, yeah. no, oh,
0: I totally agree. Douglas in Chicago has a ju- juicy question uh, for you, James, right. and me. I guess. Do you think there will be any party switches in the House or Senate between now and the midterms? Senate, of course, is tied. The House is barely teetering. So a switch in either direction would be a real game changer
1: you know, it's a it's a good question. I I, I don't think there will be. I mean I, I don't think it's gonna be sent to Manson by any stretch. If he was ever gonna change, he'd have done it in twenty eighteen and saved himself a lot of trouble. Um I, if there is, it might be more likely to be R to D than D to R. Yeah, I I think you're right. But I don't know I don't think there's I can't think of anybody who I would bet 50-50 There may be an
0: exception, or two, but the successful party switchers in the past are switching to a party that dominates their district or their state. I mean, when Richard Shelby switched parties, Alabama was becoming Republican, same with Phil Graham. And the only one that really fits in the Senate in that category for the Democrats is Joe Manchin, who is a Democrat, and and he has shown that he's a Democrat. He may get sniped at by the left wing all the time, and there are things that beliefs he has that I don't agree with, certainly on taxes, but he is a Democrat, and uh, I don't think there's any chance he'll do it, and I don't see any other prospects.
1: I, I, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't see much. I really don't. I, I don't see that much in the landscape, and maybe, you know, no, I don't. Yeah. Honestly, I don't.
0: James, you issued a challenge to our listeners to write a concise Democratic message. And, you know, we got some really, really good ones. And, and we may come back to some in subsequent programs. But Clay in Los Angeles, I think, really did well because he was short, succinct, and right to the point. His, his message is, America is as racist as we let it be. America is as great as the sweat and blood we put into it. It's our house. All responsibility is ours. And then he adds, Republicans are crooks and cranks.
1: <laughs> Yay, Clay. Hey, Clay. All right. Let, let, let's let Clay be an inspiration and let, let's keep working but on this. Let's keep keep, keep on
0: those this. suggestions coming in, James. It was yeah, a I li- good. I like, the, it was I like
1: good. the kind of optimism, you know, of, of Clay's thing. I mean, it's, it is. it's uplifting to an extent. I mean, but the slogan always says if you have it made, I, I can understand why you're a Republican. If you want to make it, I couldn't understand why you would be a Republican. <laughs> That's pretty good. Clay,
0: you can factor <laughs> that in. All right, terrific. Thank you all for listening. And now for the moment that you've all been waiting for. This is the old-timers Ivy League sphincter Hall of Fame. Former Ivy Leaguers who really were assholes, as they say, uh, and are no longer with us. Uh, James, I think the first entry, and we got a lot of, we got a lot of recommendations from our listeners, which we really do appreciate. And some of these decisions weren't easy, but some of the ones we have today are just, you know, slam dunks. John C. Calhoun, uh, the great uh, segregationist, the person who probably was more responsible for the South seceding, even though he died 10 years before the Civil War. He's our first entry, James.
1: Yeah, that, that's, that's Babe Ruth. That, that's Tom Brady, Jim Brown. Okay. That, that's LeBron, Michael Jordan, um, uh, yes. And he was vice president Andrew Jackson who wanted to hang him. And he wasn't a segregationist, he was slavery, uh, slavery you know. Uh, yeah, yes, it, that's, that's easy. No, that's non-controversial, unanimous, Willie Mays. Well,
0: just crap. to show we can jump around between centuries, uh, another, another uh, Hall of Famer uh, is Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn, who began with Joe McCarthy in the 50s and uh, ended with Donald Trump in the 80s the very uh, uh, slippery New York. He may be the the sleaziest man that I have ever met. He looked sleazy, he talked sleazy, he acted sleazy, and he was eventually disbarred by the New York uh, Bar Association because, James, what he did when uh, one of his clients was on his deathbed and really almost semi-comatose, Roy Cohn went in and changed the will. I mean, that is sleaze, and he's sleaze from the very beginning to the very end.
1: Yeah, and I, I haven't noticed a friend of mine, uh, he lived like a pig, okay? He was personally a man of grotesque hygiene and, and the way that he lived. And people would go, he had a, like a, a, a apartment in the, probably the up east side of New York. It was a legendary pig pen. I, I, I can't think of a single redeeming thing about him. But some of our listeners maybe know something and you know, maybe he gave somebody a you know, confident the uh, Someone that was ill, I don't know of any case. He, he was a massive bad guy. Yeah, He
0: really was. And uh, his, uh, he mentored Donald Trump.
1: Uh, and, uh, boy, they were, they were made for each other. That, 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 that tells you. It's unsurprising. Right. James, our next
0: nominee may surprise a few listeners, but not those that follow closely. It is President Woodrow Wilson. Now, Wilson did some very good things. He had you know the federal income tax, the Federal Reserve, were instituted under um, under Wilson. He certainly screwed up uh, with the Treaty of Versailles. I think one history has uh, has judged. But the reason he is in this is because of his record on race relations. Uh, he, under, under his term, the House passed a law with his support making racial integration a felony in the District of Columbia. Roosevelt had taken some modest steps for integration. They were reversed by Woodrow Wilson. Uh, he instructed all of his cabinet members that they could discriminate uh, and not give fair treatment to blacks. He just was terrible on an issue. And I'm not applying a standard of 2021 to 1914, but the standards of 1914, he was really, really bad. And uh, uh, he, he deserves, I think, the Hall of Fame.
1: Yeah, well, he showed Birth of a Nation in the White House, which has got to be. I, I, I'm not a, a student of historic racism, but that has to be the most racist movie. It, it makes Gone with the Wind look like a cross between *Kimberly Crenshaw and Derrick Bell, all us I mean, they're horrific.
0: You know, the next I nominee mean, is another president, uh, a Republican this time, Rutherford B. Hayes. Now, Hayes is probably forgettable to when you took uh, U.S. presidents in the sixth grade, he was one of that list of people between Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt that you could barely remember their names. But i tell you what he did. Uh, he cut a deal to get to be president because he probably lost the election. And the deal was that we would end, we would pull all northern troops out of the south. We would end Reconstruction. And so Hayes, by that deal, ushered in uh, a period of, of incredible violence and, um, and terrible ra- racism that really lasted, James, for another um, 80 years.
1: Yeah, some people would say it's still going on, yeah. it's all right, but, but, but at least the, the, the law part of it lasted for uh, another eight years. And, you know, he, I, I'm sure there were people around him that were even worse than him. He was just a beneficiary of being part of a, a, a really disgusting deal. And by the way, thanks to uh, Columbia, let's, let's give a shout-out to the Ivy League, a Columbia historian by the name of Eric Farner is has now written the seminal work on Reconstruction. And actually, it's quite favorable toward it, and, and the, the whole thing that we've been told about it, Professor Fauna, ha, has uh, called into very effectively has like changed the narrative of Reconstruction. It's kind of a personal issue to me because my great grandfather was a Republican member of the Louisiana Legislature during Reconstruction and was a very big supporter of it. So. It, it, there was some lagging thing that, well, it, was, it went too far. It wasn't that good, actually, Professor Pointer uh, is actually a big fan. Well, I look forward
0: to reading that, uh, and particularly, I mean, I think it, it, it's uh, one of the reasons that I think that the revival or the renewal of uh, appreciation for Ulysses S. Grant has been so uh, constructive. He was a right. prime advocate there. He succeeded a terrible president. And he did a lot of good things uh, uh, with uh, with Reconstruction. Right. Yeah. But, but you know, yeah. we, if we give with Columbia, we have to take with Columbia, James, because right. our final <laughs> our final member of the initial of the initial old-timers, Sphincter Hall of Fame, Ivy League, is Nicholas Murray Butler. Now, Nicholas Murray Butler again, like uh, Wilson, did a lot of good things. He even won a Nobel Prize once. He was William Howard Taft's running mate. But what he did that gets him in to this Hall of Fame, when he was president of Columbia, he amended their policy towards admitted students in order to limit the number of Jewish and Episcopalian students. He was an anti-Semite, and I think the president of Ivy League College 100 years ago who did that uh, deserves uh, recognition in the Spencer Hall of Fame.
1: Yeah, it does and I I, I wanna thank Professor Sean Wilentz, the former chairman of the History Department at Princeton, for asking for some recommendations and this is one he put forward and and yeah, he's he he's well deserving. It's a bit of a complicated guy. But usually you wouldn't think he'd limit Episcopalians. My too. people, I, I'd, James. <laughs> I'd like to know, yeah, your people. <laughs> I don't know what, I, he probably didn't even think about Catholics. <laughs> I don't know, but it's, uh, thank
0: you, Sean, uh, It Lance.
1: This, yeah. this is our initial, we'll revisit this
0: probably in about six months. Right. So keep thinking about other, uh, the, requir- the other Ivy League sphincter uh, Old Timers Hall of Fame. They have to be, be, be gone, they have to be passed away. And next month, uh, we will return to our regulars because, James, again, we're getting lots of recommendations.
1: It's a big ocean out there, man. It's a big ocean.
0: Hey, thank you for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon following this episode, we would really appreciate it if you'd check out the link to our sponsor, Blinkist. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.